Great. Well, who here is here because you're excited about hearing about eternal identities? All right, great. About half of you. The other half wandered in off the street. We're not sure exactly what... (laughs) I'm just kidding. Most of you raised your hands. And so, but if you are just here for our Wednesday night class, and because that's the routine that you have with your children, your family, uh, that's wonderful. And we're glad that you're here as well for that. And so I am excited to teach this class because this has been a subject that has been really life transforming for me personally. You know, a lot of people talk about the importance of calling in ministry, and especially when I was a young believer, there was this question that a lot of times my mentors in ministry would ask, and it was an earnest question, but I've come to realize now it's maybe a slightly misguided question, or maybe not the question we we could start with. And if you've ever, in your early 20s, been trying to figure out your vocation, a lot of times people will ask you the question, what do you feel, somebody help me out, what do you feel called to, right? What is your calling? And sometimes we spiritualize that. We take Ephesians 4, 11, and we begin to talk about the fivefold ministry. Are you called as a prophet? Are you called, especially in charismatic environments, are you called as an apostle? Are you called as an evangelist? Are you called as a teacher or a pastor? What is your calling, right? And that's not a bad question because those kinds of questions very much inform our assignment. But I think there's something true about American culture especially that really prioritizes assignment over essence, okay? That prioritizes assignment over being. And if we wanna ask the deeper question, it's not what are we called to be as apostle, prophet, evangelist, teacher, what are we called to be as business person, what are we called to be as, and sometimes, there can be a perfectly healthy connection to our sense of assignment. That's not a bad thing. Maybe you're, a, maybe you're a pastor, maybe you're a teacher, and you take a certain amount of pride in your vocational assignment. There's nothing wrong with that, so don't mishear me, right? But whatever you do in this life, hear this, it will come to an end. When we enter into our eternal assignment, you are not going to be apostle, prophet, teacher, or evangelist because the fullness will have come and we'll no longer need apostles to pioneer new things because we'll have the great high apostle of our faith overseeing everything. You're no longer going to need evangelists because we're all gonna be saved. (laughs) You're no longer going to need the ministry of the teacher because the fullness of the, the gift of teaching will be expressed when Jesus himself causes the law to go forth from Zion. Hallelujah. Like what he distributed when he ascended, he's going to manifest to us in fullness. And I think we'll have jobs. We're gonna have fun jobs. I hope I have a good gardening job. I enjoy botany and gardening. <laughs> like there's gonna be good things like Adam tended the garden you know, back in the day. There's gonna be plenty of good things to attend to in eternal age, things beyond what we can even imagine, you know? Maybe, maybe there will be teaching assignments in the eternal age. I don't know. But, but what I do know is that Scripture teaches me that, that it, it seems plain to me that whatever your vocational assignment in this life, it's going to have an end point, right? It's going to even have an end point within this life. You're going to wrestle with the time that's possibly going to come in your life where you don't have the physical strength and the energy to do things in the same way that you've always done them if you're a person that's growing older. I have some friends that are mentors that are growing older and they've said to me in different situations, I don't have the energy to do what I used to do. 
And so when the time comes in our lives where either because of a change of seasons, I know I've grappled with this when I went on my sabbatical, right? Just the question, you have to ask yourself the question, I'm no longer doing the vocational assignment that I've always done. So what does that mean concerning who I am? And what I want to propose to you is that Jesus gives us really definitive answers and he models these definitive answers. And if we root our identity in our being and who we're going to be eternally before God, we can find so much satisfaction in this life and so much freedom and so much joy knowing that we are growing in an awareness of something that will never have an end. What do I mean by that? If you have your notes with me, I'm just gonna reference a few verses. I'm still setting up the premise of this class and then we're gonna go a little deeper into the understanding of what it means to be a child of God and a royal son and daughter tonight. There may be more aspects to our eternal identity. I don't claim that the three we're gonna cover in the next couple of weeks are the fullness of it. I'm gonna wait a moment, let people grab their notes. And I'm giving these notes You'll have a digital copy that I believe we can get uh, online and it may be available either at the QR code or there's somewhere online that's available and if I catch Matthew's attention or if they put it up on the screen, there's a digital version. Some people may want the digital version to be able to easily share it with others. I think this is a message that needs to reach uh, more people within the body of Christ because I think a lot of people, if you were to ask them, what's your calling, you know, most of them would answer, well, I'm called as a teacher or I'm called as an evangelist, but I think few would answer, I'm called as a child of God. And if they were to say that, it, it, it may sound more like a cliche than a reality of heart. But the truth is where uh, apostle, prophet, evangelist, teacher, uh, business person, politician, entrepreneur, those things are going to cease you will never cease to be a child of God. And it's amazing, that's true from the moment that you're born again. I was meditating on Romans 8 in one of the devotionals. I was kind of expounding on this. I'm doing those 21 days of fearless living devotionals. You can check that out on Facebook or Instagram at Gate City or my personal page or on my YouTube. And they're about these 10 minute devotionals. But I was just expounding on Romans 8 where it says nothing can separate us from the love of God that is ours in Christ Jesus. And I was just considering the fact that what I experienced when I got born again, I experienced this touch of God's love in my life that has only grown since that time. I've only, by the grace of God, only grown more and more confident, even in my sinfulness and brokenness. I'm like, I'm more aware probably of my sinfulness than I ever have been at any point in my life. And I'm also more aware of the grace of God that loves me in the midst of it. And I'm going, I'm in this growing reality of God's love and I'm hopefully experiencing it more. It's not always a straight line up and to the right, but you know, it tends to look more like the stock market ups and downs, right? You know, day to day. But the general, my general experience of my intimacy with God is that I'm more aware that I'm loved than I ever have been at any time in my life. And the reality is I'm gonna continue to grow into that knowledge over the next billion or so years trillion or so years, there's never going to be a moment, and I was thinking about it this way, though my experience of God's love may ebb and flow, there's never a moment if you're born again believer that your life is not secure in the love of God. He's never gonna turn you away. He's never gonna 
if you had a parent that misrepresented the love of God, you know, through outbursts of anger or perhaps rejecting you or abandoning you, God is not like that. He's never going to turn himself away from you. His love, his intentional gaze, his guidance, his protection, his provision is always moving towards you out of a pure and holy motivation of love. And that's not just for the person next to you, it really is for you. And we really could, in the words of Ephesians 3.16, think on these things, the length, the width, the depth, the height of them that are beyond understanding, and we could meditate on those things, and you will never plumb the depth of the fullness of that truth. Because it is beyond our human comprehension that any being would love us so much. And this is the one that Isaiah 40 says, he calls the stars out by name and not one of those stars is missing. I mean, the, the cosmic, transcendent, holy God of the universe, there was nothing, he spoke and there was everything. This God who fashioned you precisely in your mother's womb has called you by grace through some journey that you never could have authored on your own, has brought you into a love relationship with him and he's never going to let you down out of that love relationship. Yes, there's gonna be hardships, there's gonna be hard moments, there's gonna be moments where you don't feel it, right? But even when you're at a distance from God, even when I'm absent from my children, my heart is still towards them in love. How many of you as parents have ever spent any kind of time away from your kids and, and at night when you're getting ready to go to bed, you pull up your iPhone and you just scroll through the pictures because you miss them, you miss being with them. They may not be feeling your presence, but your love, even in your absence, is towards them. This is how God feels about us times a million. And so that's the first identity, the, the identity, the eternal identity that you are a child of God. The second one is that you are the bride of Christ. So let's look at these verses just briefly. First uh, John 1, 3, it says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us. I like the version that says, behold what manner of love he has lavished upon us, that we should be called the children of God, and so we are. And the reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. And I was even thinking about this during worship, and I felt like the Lord gave me a little burst of revelation, and I'll share this thought. Sometimes we question God's acceptance but the reality is as deeply as the world will reject us because we are associated with him, to a far greater depth, God is going to accept us though we may be rejected within the world. He has not left us, though we have no home here in the earth anymore, he has made a home in his heart for us in heaven. And that's meant to give us courage to live in this life as though we are pilgrims and sojourners and only passing through. We're not permanent settlers, right? Because our home is in Zion, our home is in heaven, our home is with our eternal Father. And so we have to be confident in that love that we're moving towards if we're going to reject the temptations of this evil and present age. The lust of the flesh, the pride of life, the lust of the eyes. If we're to reject all the enticements that surround us in our culture and all the materialism of our nation and the culture that we live in, we have to be so confident that we're moving into the arms of a loving father whose love is sufficient 
to, to satisfy us far greater than any pleasure in this life. And that's what's gonna give us courage. God doesn't just call us to live holy and bored, right? He calls us to live holy and fascinated. He calls us to live holy and satisfied in his love. And so it can't just stay in the realm of theoretical. We have to touch the depths of God's love. And, and I believe he's speaking to me. He's going, you have to touch the depths of, of my love because it's in the place of knowing my love that you're going to have strength to resist the temptations of this evil and present age. Similarly, knowing Christ, we know him as brother and we know God as father. In the same manner, we also must know him as, as lover and friend which is the picture of him as bridegroom. And that's not in any kind of distorted sexual way. We know him as lover, meaning that the chief, one of the chief relationships outside of a parental relationship of unconditional love that we experience in this life and delight and pleasure is between a bridegroom and a bride. I don't know what you like to look at at, in weddings when the bride walks down the aisle, but I actually don't like to look at the bride. I like to look at the face of the bridegroom. I like to look at the guy who moments before was the picture of uh, composure, fitness, and strength. And I like to see that, that guy crumble in the moment that he sees her beauty walking down the aisle. And I like to think about how the Bible says, that's how I move Jesus' heart. And so in the same way, we have an eternal identity as the bride of Christ. And that identity speaks uniquely to how we move the heart of God. It's one thing to have the picture of my children and how my children move my heart in an unconditional manner. It's another thing to look into the eyes of my partner and friend and see how love ex is exchanged between us and to know both those, those two relationships that are the height of human expressions of love pale in comparison to the love relationship we're going to have with God in eternity. You will eternally be the bride of Christ. Revelation 21, this is describing the New Jerusalem, and he's not talking about a physical city. It can be confusing because a lot of the detail in this passage is describing the beauty of that eternal city in an architectural manner, the pearly gates and the, and the uh, jasper and diamond and all the beauty, but he calls the city coming down from heaven a bride adorned for her husband. Who is that bride? It's the people that live in the city that just moments before were described as being adorned in white, right? Which speaks of the purity and the righteousness of those who have committed themselves fully to Jesus as a bride. And Ephesians 5 also speaks of this reality. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Isn't it true that in movie after movie after movie, you know, the thing that, that touches the human heart is the picture of the bridegroom who's willing to sacrifice it all for the sake of love, right? And those stories move us because there's something, some echo of eternity that Hollywood has tapped into. And that echo of eternity is that you are made for a bridegroom. You are made for that kind of epic love. And the reality is that that's not something that we just need to enjoy in movies. That's something we can enjoy in reality in our innermost being and through our communion with God. And I know for the men in the room, it's like, okay, that's gonna take me a second to embrace the reality that I'm a bride. But the primary identity of what it means to be a child in many cases is the identity of sonship, right? 
And though it's true of sons and daughters equally, you know, the language of inheritance and the language of our childlike identity oftentimes is couched as sons. And so for the women in the room, I would say you need to understand sonship and that aspect of identity. For the men in the room, you need to know what it means to be a bride and what it means to enjoy that unconditional delight. And then lastly, what it means to be a priest. And this third identity, I think many have through the decades in my observation, mind the truth of there were ministries like Jack Frost's ministry in the 90s and early 2000s that were entirely built on the idea of helping establish people in their identity as children of God. There were whole movements of teaching. I think of Mike Bickle out of Kansas City who taught extensively on Song of Solomon and bridal identity. And I feel like the one that has been perhaps communicated the least about is the revelation of what it means that we will eternally be priests. And so we see that in 1 Peter 2.9, you are a chosen race, a holy priest, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So Peter, the fisherman from Galilee, who walked with Jesus for three years, and is writing his epistle in his own words, and he's describing the Christian experience, and he says, you know how God chose Levites in the Old Testament? He chose Levites because the whole nation was unwilling, right? He wanted the whole nation, but they shrunk back at Sinai because they said the vision of who God was and lightning and thundering was too terrifying, And so God chose a portion of that nation, set them apart as priests. But God's intention from the beginning was always to have a people that were entirely set apart to him. And when he sacrificed Jesus and Jesus became a high priest on his behalf, he opened a way, and we'll go much deeper into this, but he opened a way for us all to become priests in the same manner that he's a priest. And you are now qualified to offer sacrifices to God, a holy God, with clean hands and a pure heart, and there is no disqualification because of your sin. There is no disqualification because of your disobedience to the law. You can offer legitimate sacrifices of praise and worship and proclamation and just an awareness of who God is. You can declare to God who he is and declare the earth who he is, and that arises before God as incense. And you get to priest before God as a primary part of your ministry. And you get to be a priest in the marketplace or a priest in the classroom. You get to be a priest in the sphere of government that God has placed you. You get to be a priest in your business. You get to be a priest in your home as a father or mother. You get to be a priest as a homeschool mom. You get to to priest before God and let the entirety of your life be expressed to him as a living sacrifice. And he says in Revelation 1, 5, 6, this is... John writing the introduction to the book of Revelation, and he summarizes, I believe in part, everything that he's about to see by describing it this way. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. When do we see Jesus described as a faithful witness again? I believe it's Revelation 22. The faithful witness who comes with a sword on his thigh to judge the nations. So he's hearkening to the the witness of Jesus as a judge in the earth. And he goes, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. So he's talking about Jesus in his supreme authority. He says to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. He's talking about him as the one who has uniquely prepared us to come before God by washing you clean from your sins. He's loved you, he's freed you from sin, 
by his blood to make you a kingdom. And in making you a kingdom, what is it that he wants from you? Priest to God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. The one who is supremely powerful, omnipotent, omniscient, since eternity passed. The one who was before time began, before time existed. This one wants your worship. He esteems it. He values it. It is precious to him. It is so precious that he gave the very blood of his son Jesus in order to have you as a priest before him. Now we begin to talk about that holy transcendent God and we should rightly tremble on the inside. I mean, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But yet we have verses like Hebrews chapter two that tells us though he is holy and transcendent and entirely other than, we can approach the throne with boldness and ask for help in time of need. We can approach the throne of God with boldness and we can pray to this one and be confident that he hears us and that we'll receive the things we've asked for. There's been a way for you to come before God and you can climb up in his lap as daddy, you can stand beside Jesus as bride, or you can stand before him with hands raised, gazing upon his beauty as priest. And all those things you're going to get to do for eternity future. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Isn't it good that Jesus and the Father have chosen the highest of human relationships and said, this is how I want to relate to you forever? That's awesome. That's, when we start to talk about the gospel being good news, yes, it's good news that we can serve him, right? Yes, it's good news that we're redeemed from hell. Like, I'm so thankful that I'm not going to hell. But how sweet is it that I'm going to end up forever in heaven? And that the sweetness of heaven is that I'm going to be, it's going to be a family reunion in heaven. It's going to be where we get to sit at the table at the wedding supper of the lamb. And guys, get this. Okay, heavy revy right here. You are not guests at the wedding supper of the lamb. You are the bride at the wedding supper of the lamb. You are not second-tier spectators in the audience while someone else gets to worship him, right? You get to be front and center in the throne room of God offering him worship and prayer. The cherubim and seraphim are like, back up. Hazen's in the throne offering worship. It says in Hebrews, it's amazing. It says he did not give this aid to angels concerning the redemption that he's done on your behalf. He did not, as a merciful and high priest, he has gone before us and made us away. And he did not give that aid to angels. He did not die to redeem the angels, but he died to redeem you and make you a priest, to make you a child, to make you his bride. We can just do the altar call right now, right? What happens to the human heart when we begin to meditate on these truths? I may get to the notes, I may not. I'm, I'm enjoying the vein that we're on right now. What happens in the human heart when we begin to b- believe these truths? Well, I can tell you what the enemy wants. You know, if you go to the book of Zechariah chapter four, it talks about how the accuser accuses Joshua the high priest before the throne of God and says, your garments are filthy, you're defiled, you're unacceptable. And then the Lord rebukes him and t- and tells the angel, and the angel 
says, take off his dirty turban, take off his filthy garments, clothe him with a clean turban, clothe him with clean garments. And that's a picture of God's atoning work in our lives, that though we were unfit based on our own works, he speaks the word and says, you're clean. Jesus actually says this. It's an amazing verse that we just can go over a little too quickly in John 15, where it says, you've been made clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. See, the gospel message, when believed upon, has cleaned out your heart. If he's cleaned out to use the the old Hebrew image of, of leaven and an unleavened lump, he's cleaned out the leaven, the yeast that that has contaminated you and he's made you a new lump in Christ, right? He's made you clean through what you've believed. He's trimmed the dead things off of you and your faith has made you fit to stand before God. You're a new creation in Christ, you're changed. And if that is true, the enemy has no power to accuse you in the presence of God any longer. But if he can deceive you into thinking anything less than the truth about your identity, he can cause you to believe you're disqualified and to not come before God, even though there's not any possibility, there's no power for him to disqualify you because nothing can separate you from the love of God that is yours in Christ Jesus. Neither height nor depth, neither angel nor demon. I mean, it lists the devil and says he doesn't have the power expressly in the word of God. So the only power he has is to deceive you into that not being true and tricking you into living like it isn't true. And so it's a very powerful thing when the people of God begin to rise up in their eternal identity because it gives you confidence in the place of prayer. It gives you confidence against the accuser. It gives you confidence and joy knowing that no matter how hard it gets in this life, my day of death is my day of promotion. It's my day of reward, right? What's like the worst thing that could have happened to you today? You die, right? (laughs) Like it's one of the worst, okay? That's true for the world, but that's not true for believers. I mean, the apostles don't even call it death. They say he fell asleep because their faith had made death, which seems so permanent to the world, so transient for the believer. You've actually risen above the power of death. He's delivered you from the power of death, delivered you from the fear and torment of death. He set you free, beloved. Free to be a son and daughter. Free to be a bride. Free to worship him and offer sacrifices as a priest. I don't know about you, but there are moments when I feel discontent with my vocation at times. Don't tell my boss, okay? Don't tell the congregation at church. Don't tell anybody on Sundays. But there are moments where it's hard to be a pastor. I'm sure there are moments. Whatever you do in this room, there's moments where it's hard for you to do that thing, right? Anybody ever wanted a fallback plan? Like if this thing doesn't work out, I'm going to fall back on. My fallback is cruise ship captain. If this thing doesn't work out. I appreciate that. Said Someone said, I can see that. Um, what if we made our fallback child of God and in the moments where it got hard, we just rested in, it's all okay because my father loves me, right? Uh, Our fallback became, I can be held in the eternal love of my bridegroom in the moments where maybe our spouse isn't offering us the love that we long for or maybe we're walking through this life for a variety of reasons without that companionship. Can we believe that Jesus is enough? 
uh, can we believe that it's enough for us to offer our priestly love to him and that he actually finds the weakness of our sacrifice pleasing? When my friends in the night watch are worshiping in the midnight hour and there's no one in the room, but they're doing it for the audience of one, can we just, what if, what if our fallback was, you know, I don't need to be a better worship leader. I don't need to be a worship leader in front of a larger audience. Like, this is sufficient because what I'm touching is actually eternal. What I'm actually touching is transcendent. You can get some joy from thinking about those things that money cannot produce in your life. You can get some true joy deep on the inside that no circumstantial change could, could produce in your life. Just by meditating on the eternal reality of who you are to him and who he is to you. And it's such a beautiful thing because, and I'll say this because I, so, I think it's so important when we talk about what we meditate on. If we meditate on ourselves, that can become narcissistic, but all these answers about our eternal identity are rooted in orienting ourselves upon who he is. Meaning, we know that we're a child because we observe what a great father he is. And we know that we're a bride because we observe the greatness of the love of the bridegroom. And we observe that we are priests because of the holiness of the God that we love and serve. And so we see in who he is and who he says we are, who we get to be and who we are becoming. It says that all of creation is groaning for the revealing of the children of God. There is actually a brokenness in creation that will only be remedied when you become who you are called to be at the resurrection. And it's not somebody else, it's you. You could rewrite that verse, you could paraphrase that verse. All of creation is groaning for the revealing of Melanie. All of creation as a child and daughter of God. All of creation, I'm just gonna hit my front row here. All of creation is waiting for the revealing of Maria. All of creation is waiting for the revealing of Jim. And when you're revealed, something is gonna happen to the creation that God has put under the authority of humanity. And that is, he is going to redeem all creation, but he's going to redeem it through redeeming the pinnacle of his creation, the only thing that bears his image uniquely. That's why the fall was so tragic. You were the only thing created in the image of God and we all rebelled against him. But for those in this room who've said yes to him and yes to the glorious gospel, you've committed to a life of transformation. You've been born again in your spirit. There's a moment when you're gonna see him at the resurrection and become like him fully. And all of creation is going to rejoice and be restored. Why? Because you've taken your place as a son and daughter of God. This is an amazing story. It is an amazing story. And when we enter into that identity, those are the kinds of things that help us begin to touch the reality of eternity and the things that we so often be, are distracted by, how much money I have, how good my job is, how many people know my name, right? The great men of this age are not going to be discussed in the eternal age. But that little girl who broke her oil out at the feet of Jesus, and he promised her everywhere this gospel of the kingdom is preached, the testimony of what you've done for, Mary, for me, Mary, will be preached. Like she is going to be remembered there and on into eternity. That woman who took that 
the fullness of her wages and dropped it in as the widow's might. And he said, truly, she gave more than all the others, right? He actually says to David, I'm going to make your name as though it's one of the great names of the men of the earth. And we still talk about David today. But imagine when we enter into eternity, we're not going to talk about the fallen rulers of this age. We're going to talk about those who gave their lives sacrificially, people whose names we don't even know right now. (laughs) And they're going to be the heroes of the next age because of how they have loved and sacrificed for Jesus. There might be some of you sitting in this room. We don't know. But I can tell you how we live this life in continuity and, and in light of our eternal reward has everything to do with being rooted in this identity, not a transient identity that ends with the, the end of our time here on earth. And so if we can grasp it, meditate on it, chew it up, digest it from the scripture, it will change us. And it will help us. I mean, there's nothing more practical, right, than, than to becoming a good husband than receiving the love of my bridegroom. There's nothing more practical in loving my children than knowing the love of my father. There's nothing more practical in being able to offer a heart of devotion to God daily through all the trials and difficulty than singing praise and thanks to God and believing that he receives my offering. There's nothing more practical than living in these identities that will be mine for eternity. Amen. I'm going to pray. And I'm going to take this jacket off because it's getting hot up here. (laughs) I'm going to pray for us just one more time and then I'll take the last 20 minutes. We're going to dive a little deeper into the identity of what it means to be a son and daughter. Next week we'll go into what it means to be a bride. The next week we'll spend the final session on what it means to be a priest. And if you know that someone needs to hear these, share the YouTube stream. Bring somebody with you who needs to hear this message. And let's go deep together in the identities that God has uniquely given us. So Father, I pray for, I believe that you have given me faith uh, and that you've given this room faith to receive something from heaven. And so we pray, Lord, that something supernatural would begin to happen, that people who have always felt like an orphan would begin to feel like a child. And for those that have always felt disenfranchised and more like a widow, they would begin to feel like a bride. And I pray, Lord, for those who have felt defiled and accused and ashamed and unworthy, they would begin to know their presence is not just tolerated, but is welcomed before the throne of Almighty God. Hallelujah. We praise you, God. We thank you. I thank you, Lord. I sense even that, I sense that this exhortation tonight is, It's your Holy Spirit helping. So take these weak words, translate them into real change in people's lives. I have no power to do that, but you can do that, God. And I believe you. I believe upon you for this. Let people be in the presence of of your spirit and of your word and the hearing of your word and let them rise different. Let them arise wanting to disentangle themselves from sin and let them arise wanting to be more the the husband, father, mother, brother, sister in Christ that, that they are called to be, Lord. Stir us by your spirit. Revive us by your spirit. Strengthen our hearts to to love you and be fascinated by you even more, Lord. We need your strength. And let us separate ourselves from all that would defile us and weigh us down and pollute us, Lord. 
pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So most of what I'm going to share these final 20 minutes or so, and and I may not even share 20 minutes because I want to leave a little time for us to pray and minister to people, is here in the notes, but I'm not going to follow it precisely. Uh, What I want to, so you can set those aside to read them later. What I want to say to us tonight regarding your identity as a child of God is that if Jesus needed what I'm going to say to you tonight, then you definitely need it. And what I mean is Jesus lives this life on the earth, and the best I can tell, the first story that we have from him where he kind of runs away from home, right? He's, he's there in Jerusalem. They've traveled to Jerusalem with a caravan. I'm not sure exactly where it is in Scripture. I think it's in, you probably find this story in the book of Luke. But he separates himself, and he gets lost. And the implication is he may have done it on purpose because his mother says, why have you done this to us when he finds, you, <laughs> finds him? Incidentally, I lost my daughter at church last night. She was supposed to be here. And then I literally got in the car, began to drive off campus. My wife said, she's still there. You need to take her home. So I came back. Tim had to pull up the security camera and had to find her. And she was down talking to one of the, the, her friends down in the kids' area. And I said to her, why have you done this to me, child? <laughs> it was fine. We got her home safe. But... It was a little bit like, I almost left you for the first time, you know, like the parent leaves, you forget you have the kid at the grocery store with you and you leave them. Oh, don't act like y'all never do that. Somebody doing that. If you haven't had kids, you haven't done that. But that's the except, only exception in the room is if you don't have kids. All of you have forgotten your child somewhere. And so <laughs> my wife's saying it's not true. You've forgotten our children somewhere at least one time. Okay, just me. All right. So this is great. I'm glad you're in here for this part, this one part. Perfect. And so, so Jesus gets left in Jerusalem. His mom finds him and says, why are you doing this? And he goes, did you not know I would be in my father's house? From the earliest we can tell, Jesus understood something about his identity as a son. And all I'm saying to us tonight is that if he needed it, you need it. And it's no less true of you than it was of him. The Bible makes it plain. And I think it's so interesting because he could have said other things. He could have said, don't you know I would have been in the house of my God? Don't you know I would have been in the house of prayer? Don't you know I would have been in the house of Jehovah Jireh, God my provider? He could have have called God anything, but what does he say? Father, don't you know I would be in my father's house? And then Jesus grows up. And the next time we see him, Mark 1, 11, Luke 3, I believe 16, he's at the shores of the Jordan. And there's his cousin, John the Baptist, baptizing. And Jesus walks out to the Jordan, not because he had any sin that needed to be washed away. He's lived a perfectly obedient and holy life. But he says to John, in order to fulfill all righteousness, I need to submit to this baptism. So the perfect one, the holy one, submits to this baptism in water and he's submerged in water as an example to us and there are other potential implications as to why he, he participated in that baptism. But what we know that happened next, right, is the heavens open 
it says. The Holy Spirit descends upon him and the Father speaks of him, but he speaks of him something he already knew, but he tells him, to it, tells him it again. He says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And what's so amazing is, you know, I, I had a friend and he would kind of irritate me, honestly, because he would constantly, we, you, some of y'all know who I'm talking about. I love you, Chris Gazzardo. But my friend Chris, he wrote songs about it, rapped about it, meditated on it. And honestly, this verse changed his life. He got married on 111, no exaggeration, <laughs> okay? Mark 111, and he got married on 1111 because that verse is so impactful to his life. But he would always, you know, he would sing it. He'd go, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And that doesn't change <laughs> on a good or bad day. And he would rap it and sing it and pray it and it went deep in his heart. But it, when, he, when I first experienced him meditating, talking about this verse, I was like, are you sure that when God spoke it over Jesus, he meant it for me? Because I was like, I don't know if he delights in me every day. Like, I'm not sure. Like, there's got to be days where he's not happy. Because I have lived and do continue to live pretty bad, ugly days. Days when I do things that I'm not, a sh that I'm not proud of, like leave my children places and such. Most of the time by accident. And, um, <laughs> but in all seriousness, it's like there are really dark things in our lives, things we do that are shameful, disappointing. And am I, do I really believe that he's pleased with me? But Ephesians 1 says that God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing that is in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus. So guess what? The blessing that God blessed Abraham with, that's your blessing in the gospel. The blessing that God blessed Moses with to see his glory, that's your blessing in the new covenant. The, the blessing that God spoke over Jesus at the Jordan, you're my beloved son whom I'm well pleased. He speaks that over you. And we see it repeated ad nauseum throughout the scripture. And so the truth is, just like with my natural children, though they do have disobedient and challenging days, the overall motivation of my heart towards them is never anger, it's love. Even if there is a flash of anger, impatience, or disappointment, it's rooted in the reality. I'm responding that way because primarily in my heart, I love them. Love them so much I would die for them if, if called upon to do it. And so we understand that God's overwhelming heart towards us is truly the same as it is for Jesus. And Jesus says it plainly in later in his upper room discourse in the book of John. He says, the same love with which you have loved me, Father, you have placed in them. And I believe it's 15.9, he says, the same manner in which the Father has loved me, now I have loved you. Now abide in that love. So Jesus has loved us as the Father has loved him, and the Father has loved us as Jesus. Uh, the Father loves us the same as the Father loves Jesus. And so if the two of you appear before the throne of God, right, and it's, it's Hazen and Jesus, in my mind, I would think there's no competition there. God certainly loves Jesus more than me. But Jesus' testimony is that the same love that the Father has towards him, the Father has towards me. And so God goes, guys, 
Just like I say to my own children, I love you. I love you all the same. I say, I say, Amran, you're my very favorite first daughter. Pearl, you're my very favorite third daughter. Kessid, you're my very favorite second daughter. And I only have one that's like you, and I love you, right? And that's how God looks at us. His love is unique, and it's towards you, and you're his child. And Jesus is the firstborn among many brethren, but just like my own daughter, she's the first within the family, but she's not loved more than the rest of the family. You are no less a child of God than Jesus Christ himself. And the Bible tells that plainly. And so you can open up your heart today and as the God of all the universe thundered from heaven over Jesus, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. This is my beloved daughter in whom I'm well pleased. It is as true over you as it was over Jesus at the River Jordan. Now how important is that revelation. I was joking about my friend where I got tired of him saying it, right? And the truth is that God actually repeats that same thing. There are only three times in the gospels that we hear God audibly speak from heaven. Three times. One at the Jordan, one at the transfiguration, and one as Jesus is on the way to the crucifixion. And each time the God of heaven thunders, do you know what he says? He says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. This is my son. Listen to him. This is my beloved son. And he speaks every time an affirmation of that eternal identity. Was Jesus only a son? No, he was the God of the cosmos. Was Was he only a child of the eternal father? No, he's the warrior king that's going to conquer the nations. He could have said, this is my chosen king and who I'm going to set on Zion's hill. And it would have been no less true, right? It would have been no less true of Jesus. But what he chooses is to say something that's not only true of Jesus. It's the most important thing about Jesus. It's his Trinitarian identity. And it's also what happens to be true of us and primary to us in our relationship with God. You are a beloved son. You are a beloved, much loved daughter and God's delight is towards you. Now I want to take the closing two or three minutes. Melanie, you can come on up and I want to talk about what that means that God's love is towards you. Uh, That he delights in you. That he's pleased with you and that he likes you. How many of you have had a natural relationship where you're like, I know that person loves me but I feel like at times they don't like me. Right? Maybe you had a parent that was like easily annoyed with your presence and you had that message communicated to you in your growing up years, you know, that you were a nuisance, that you were a bother, that, that you, you weren't wanted in the same way as someone else or, or maybe just generally you were undesirable. And that's why it's important for us to hear that God's love is not like any human's love that is woefully inadequate. God's love for us as children doesn't just represent his commitment to us. Like when we tend to think of God as loving, we tend to think, well, he's committed to me. He's going to bring me into eternity and hopefully he likes me. But the reality is that in all your brokenness, in all your inadequacy, you are no different than the child that runs in 
all muddy and filthy because they did the exact opposite of what you were told to do. And they went out and they played in the mud and they didn't have their shoes on. They come in a mess. And it's like, you know, maybe we've had earthly parents that communicate to us like, well, now you've really messed things up. You've made a mess. Get it right. Get cleaned up. Fix the situation. And the way the heavenly father receives us in our mess is the same way the prodigal son is received in his mess. Fresh from the pigsty, right? I remember returning to the Lord after a season away from God, maybe even coming to the Lord for the first time. I mean, I'd been baptized. I'd acknowledged that God was real. I acknowledged Jesus as son, but I don't even know if I was really born again. I was coming back to God and I remember listening to the radio, pulling into my college apartment and it was Charles Stanley on the radio and he was talking about the story of the prodigal son. And in the story, he said that the father would have been very dignified Right, and he would have had probably in the custom of the Middle East in that day, he would have had a lengthy robe on. But it says he saw his son when he was a long way off and he ran to meet him, which meant that the father would have had to reduce his dignity in order to reach that prodigal son. And so he describes how he probably hiked up his robe in order to run, because the scripture says he ran to meet him. And furthermore, in the most undignified manner, it says he falls upon him weeping his arms embracing him. And the son, who if you'll remember in the story, who'd wasted all of his father's wealth on living wild, begins his rehearsed speech asking his father to become a servant in his household. And the father says to this son who had been living wayward, he says to him, no, 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 no. He goes, let's put the signet ring back on your finger got my wedding ring here. The signet ring, the ring represented the checkbook in that day. It was what was used to sign official documents. And in doing that, he actually is restoring his son's future inheritance. The very thing the son is coming back, having completely wasted. And he says, I'm gonna give you back your inheritance, your place in my household. He's probably wearing raggedy clothes. He said, let me put a fresh garment on you. And he doesn't just put someone else's garment. He goes, go to my closet and get my robe and put the finest robe in the house on him. And he goes, go kill the fatted calf. We have some friends that have been fattening up some pigs recently <laughs> and then they slaughtered them. And so learning a little bit about fattening livestock through this. And it takes, you gotta feed animals a lot to get them at the proper weight. So this is an investment of time and energy and they've been fattening the calf for a special moment. And the special moment that father chooses is the return of his wayward son. And he says later in the story to, his, to the older brother who is irritated at the merciful, generous nature of the father. And he says to him, you've never even given me, I'm sure he sounded like, you've never even given me a goat to celebrate with my friends. And the father in his generous heart, he says, all that I have son is yours and I am ever with you. But it was right that we celebrate your brother's return because he was dead to us, but now he's alive. Hallelujah. Why does God celebrate your homecoming? Because you were dead to him and now he has you. He has you with him. And he's eternally delighted and excited and celebrating you. 
and you think, well, I clicked on the wrong thing. I got mad with my kids. I wasn't kind to my wife. I've really messed it up, and now I'm unworthy. I can only be a servant in your household. And he says, from the moment that you came home, I had nothing but joy in my heart for you. I delight in you. You're my child. You said yes to me. You're alive, not dead anymore. You're mine. That's enough. Can we let that, can we let the Father's words over us be the true testimony of our lives? Nothing can disqualify. It doesn't matter what a mess you come in, your knees bloodied and your, your garment stained where you fell in the mud, you messed it up again. He doesn't say, go upstairs, get yourself cleaned up. He scoops you up and says, my child, my child. I know it's a vivid image, but my children have had the throw-ups this last week on a few different occasions. When they were in their mess, when they were sick, when they were struggling, when it was gross, frankly, I wasn't concerned, is it getting on me? I wasn't concerned about, all I could care about was, are they okay? How can I comfort them? How can I love them? And a lot of times we think the throw up of our sin, to be graphic in the metaphor, is so revolting to God. He can't possibly be with me in this situation. But the truth is, there's no time that God wants to be more close to you than in your mess. Because you're his child and he loves you. He's chosen to be your father forever. And he made that commitment before you ever existed in your mother's womb. And now here we are, the children of God. And nothing can separate you from that eternal love. Let's stand together. I just want to speak a benediction and a blessing over you. And I know that that it's true in this room that some are probably grappling with this. You're maybe receiving in your head, but it's hard in your heart because you've never felt a, a natural mother or father delight in you. And I just want to declare over you and for you to open your heart. You don't have to do anything to receive it. Just believe upon God's word to be sufficient, ministered by the Holy Spirit. The Bible says that the the Spirit testifies with our spirits that we are the children of God. And I just want to believe for that to happen in this moment. I want to speak the blessing. You are a beloved child of God. Nothing you have ever done or will ever do will disqualify you from being his child. The Father delights in you. The Father chose you. The Father has blessed you. He's clothed you with a fresh garment. He's put sandals on your feet. He's restored your inheritance. He celebrates and rejoices in you. And he commands his angels to do likewise. You are a son. You are a daughter. And you shall be for all eternity. His love is forever towards you. It has embraced you. Nothing can separate you from it. It is within you being poured out by the Holy Spirit. And where a father has not loved you or embraced you or a mother has not loved you or embraced you, God's love is sufficient. You are accepted by God eternally, unconditionally. He loves you. He likes you. Because you came home. You came home. You're his. You've always been his. And you didn't have to do anything more but just say yes to being his. And you you can come home anytime in a mess because you're his. 
You're his. You're his. You're his beloved son, his beloved daughter. In whom he is well pleased. I am pleased with you, says the Father. I am pleased with you, and I like you, and you're enough. Your weak efforts to love me are so delightful. You're enough for me. You move my heart, and I love you. So Lord, I pray right now by the spirit of adoption, I love that it's called the spirit of adoption because it just reinforces that thought. You know, in adoption, you get to pick your kids. Spirit of adoption picked you, make you a son and a daughter. He picked you. He chose you. You're not here by accident. You're not here by your own will. He wanted you as his own. Holy Spirit, I ask in this moment, show people who they are to you and just with the closing moment I want to ask for a heavenly exchange just take a moment just in your heart of hearts say Lord speak to me by your spirit who am I to you who am I to you he may answer now he may answer later but who am I to you speak to me at home encourage you the same question Lord who am I to you I have no doubt God is giving many in this room his own version you are my beloved son you are my beloved daughter and in you I am well pleased so we pray Lord that that truth would be sealed in every heart within the hearing of my voice we ask that that would be done in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Good. Thank you for being here tonight. And I would encourage you again, if someone needs this message, share it with them. I don't always say that, but I just felt that tonight. So be bold. Share the things you're receiving that are blessing you. And come back next week. Let's, let's continue to fellowship over these truths between Wednesday nights. And God bless you. Go in peace as sons and daughters of God. Amen.